0: So it was October of 1991 when a sword-fishing boat that was called the Andrea Gale set out from the northeastern shore of the North American continent out into the North Atlantic in those cold, dark waters. The crew had no idea when they left that they would never return. This story is one that was told Uh, years later in that movie that many of us know called The Perfect Storm. If you know anything about the movie, then you're familiar at least with the story enough to know that that particular trip where they went out into what was a certain storm that would become the perfect storm as several different factors came together and uh, threatened the life of that crew and ultimately took the life of that crew. That there were things that pushed them out into the water in those days that made them feel like they had no real choice but to go out. I want to take that part of that story and drop it squarely into our laps today. Because most of us don't find ourselves having to make a decision about going out into That kind of a weather situation on a boat that actually takes you further than you ever wanted to go. But we do find ourselves up against situations uh, that stretch us and that often paint us into corners or at least we feel like they paint us into corners where we have no real choice about what we're going to do. If you follow that movie or the story of that crew, you'll know that they reached a situation where they began to see that they were not going to survive, and it became a hopeless situation for them. I think that the reality for us is that hopeless situations have a way of crowding into our daily schedules. When we least expect it, we are confronted with situations, whether it be financial or relationship, or health problems, or any number of things that begin to push up against us, and if we're not careful, we feel like we are without hope. This morning, what I would like to do is take the time that I have to, uh, I guess, to shove us, to nudge us, if necessary, into being re-amazed at the resurrection. I operate under this basic point of reference that says that in our Christian world and in our uh, Southeast Texas sensibilities about church and religion, that Easter time is one of those times that we easily slip into this churchy kind of a mode and we know the right things to say, he has risen, he has risen indeed, that uh, are true enough, but if we're not careful, they also ring very hollow. I'd like for us to be re-amazed at the resurrection, but I think for that to happen, we need to reconnect with the hopelessness and the despair of our pre-Easter condition. I think to help with that, maybe we start with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll go to that passage before this message is over. But let me just kind of quickly bring you into the situation. Jesus is on the verge of being arrested. And uh, at the tail end of the arrest procedures and the trial procedures, uh, those religious leaders using the Roman authorities will take Jesus and they will kill him by hanging him on a cross. A horrific kind of a way to die. But before all of that happens, after the last supper, Jesus takes his disciples and he makes his way into this garden, garden full of olive trees, just kind of outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus takes his disciples, it's at night, and some of them kind of hang out at one place. He goes a little further with a few other ones, and he says, y'all wait here for me and pray with me. And... And then he goes on further, and and at that moment where he is most alone, what I believe is maybe the moment in Jesus' whole earthly life where the balance between his humanity and his divinity are most pronounced as it relates to what's going to be making the call. And he utters those words. Now I'm going to put them in my own language. But essentially, Jesus says in prayer, I don't want to do this. You ever said that about things in life? You ever been up against situations in your life where you're confronted with the reality, this is what it is, but I don't want to do that. That human part of Jesus very honestly cries out to God, I don't want to do this. But then the divine part steps into that weakness and And Jesus says, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. You see, before the glory of the resurrection, there was that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus began to bump up against the despair that haunts the human condition. So what I want to do today is take you on a trip back to that garden but I want to go through another passage of Scripture to get you there. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to the book. It's one of those great Resurrection Sunday texts, Second, Second Kings chapter 5. In Second Kings chapter 5, we have this story, and, and I'm going to play it out for us, and I'm just going to kind of walk through the story, and then we'll move to the second act of this drama of Easter, and we'll go over to the book of Matthew and finally end up in the book of Acts. But in, in this first act where we have multiple scenes, we find the story of a guy who's not even a Jew. He's not from Israel. He's actually from Syria. As a matter of fact, he's a commander for the Syrian king of the, of the armed forces of the Syrian king. Uh, the guy's name is Naaman, Now, we should get the background on this a little bit before I go into the story itself because it's really important that we get that. This guy is not a Jew. As a matter of fact, he commands the forces that are making these north to south raids on the Israeli camps or cities, if we put it in our modern geography here in East Texas, we might say that uh, him being from Syria, we might say that he was in Lufkin and he would come down and make raids into our area and then retreat back. Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. Now we pick up in verse one, Second Kings chapter 5. And Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Let me just stop for a second before I go any further and let me make this observation. There is enough evidence in that first part of that first verse for us to take heart in hopeless situations. This guy, I've already said several times now, he was not a Jew. He was not part of the people of God as we find them in the Old Testament. And yet that verse that we've already read, not even read the whole verse yet, and it highlights the fact that God has used him and blessed him in what he had done. Here's good news for you. You're never forced to be outside of God's people. There's always room for outsiders with God. I pick up reading. He was a mighty man a valor. He had all these things going for him, and yet there's this one piece of his life that injects hopelessness into our scene here. And that is the last part, that last little clause of this verse, but he was a leper. And with that, we find that Naaman, with all that he had going for him, had this one incurable disease. Now, it wasn't at that point, it wasn't of the type that would exclude him from all social contact, although there was that kind of leprosy back in those days. But his was such that it still was no, there was no cure for the leprosy that he had. It is a medically hopeless situation for him. And that's probably good for us to just kind of hang on to for a second. And let me just throw this out to you. The reality for all of us is that when we bump up against those kind of conditions or situations, we have to respond somehow. What is your most hopeless set of circumstances in your life? Do you have to sit and think very long and hard about the things in your life that if they just kept going the way they're going would put you in a bad situation? You know, one of the hardest things for me as a pastor is to talk to people I know and care about and hear them say, well, you know, such and such is happening with me and, uh, and it's relationship issues, it's family issues issues. It's health issues, it's broken relationships, it's broken people. That's Naaman. For all that he had going for him, there was this part of his life that was out of whack, if you will. And so that takes us to the second scene. And this guy who had it all going for him except for this one part that injects hopelessness into his condition, now he moves to try to fix that and that is what we normally try to do and that is that we try to buy off God. Well, it's not exactly the way it's stated here. Let's look at verses two through five and see how he pulls that off. Now the Syrians on, their, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. And into that hopelessness now there is this lightning bolt of hope. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman picks up on that in verse 4. So Naaman went in and he told his lord, that is the king. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him. Now here's the buying off part, right? He's going to go show up now where the prophet of God is. And he takes with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Let me translate those things into American ease. He took a bunch of stuff, (laughs) and it was very valuable. And he takes that stuff, and he goes, and he shows up because he's got this one part of his life that's not right. He has a skin problem. And so he takes this evidence of his wealth, and he goes, hopelessness has a way of driving us to twisted thinking. We don't necessarily think that it's twisted thinking. It's that part of our thinking that when we run into that, it's as if we say, well, if I'll just do this, then maybe God will respond to me in such a way that I'll be better off. And we do, we, the twisted part of that, we do it in a lot of different ways. We, we do it sometimes just go, well, okay, so I'm going to go to church. And if I just go to church, God, God will see that and I'll get extra credit for that. You know, I had a situation in the church I served before I came here. Many of you I know don't know me. Uh, I've been here almost five years now. I served for about 20 years down in the Rio Grande Valley on the border with Mexico down close to Brownsville in that area. The church I served was about a half a mile from the county seat and therefore on this particular day from the courthouse. Um, and, And so because of that, we got a lot of traffic. It was kind of the inner part of the city of Edinburgh, and there were a lot of outlying areas, but in this particular case, we had a lot of people that would just kind of come through who were downtown doing business, and um, and so this one day, I got word that uh, actually our custodian came to talk to me. Now, Pedro was from that area and spoke Spanish as a mother tongue, uh, much better than he spoke English, and yet he came to me, and he said, "Uh, there's a guy in the auditorium. And I said, okay, and he said, he said, the lights are off. And he said, I don't even know how he got in there. He's just in there. And I said, okay. He said, you need to go talk to him. (laughs) Hello. So I started looking around for some of our big manly deacons. Uh, They weren't there. They were working or something. And so I decided it was probably the thing for the pastor to do to go in there and talk to this guy. And so now I'm struck with this dilemma. How do I do this without, you know, I don't know what the guy's there for. He's in there stealing the sound equipment. Is he in there because he's about ready to kill a preacher and he's just looking for one? And so I I didn't know what was going on. So I decided the best thing for me to do is to slip in behind him in the dark. Because I knew that building, and if I could just get down to the floor, I could crawl to safety if I had to. So I snuck in behind him, and I listened as I began to hear him muttering. And I thought he was muttering to himself. I wasn't exactly sure, and the longer I talked to him, uh, not talked to him, the longer I listened to him, I could tell that he was praying in Spanish. I don't know Spanish, but I learned enough down there that I could pick up a few phrases and recognize (laughs) I could... Understand it a lot better than I could speak it, and uh, and so I sat there for a while listening to him as I heard him pouring himself out to God. So I finally grabbed him on the shoulder, that scared him, and I leaned forward and I said, "Hey, man, what can I do to help you?" And he began to talk to me in kind of broken English. And in that discussion, it became clear to me that this guy's life had fallen apart. As it turns out, he was on his way to the courthouse for a hearing. He wasn't sure what he could expect from that hearing. And in the process of that discussion, he said these things to me in no, not exactly these words, but essentially this. He said, you know, I was in church as a kid. And I walked away from all of that. And I just thought maybe God could help me today. Let me tell you something. the Chances are good in in churches all over the world today. People wandered in thinking exactly that. I just thought maybe God could help me. Part, Part of what we run into, I think, In this whole thing about buying favor with God is that it comes from this center point of our lives. It says, okay, I I believe that God's out there, but I don't really need him in my life too much until I need him. But then when I need him, I don't know how to connect with him. And so we do things in our churches. we, We sell into this, and pastors sell into this sometimes by saying, well, if you just give enough money, then God will honor that for you. Well, you know what? That sometimes can come across as if you just spend enough money, God will see that, and he'll balance the scales for you. That's Naaman here. I got this condition. It's hopeless. And so I'm going to take of the stuff that I do have, and I'm going to give it to this man of God who's going to heal me, which leads us to scene three. And in scene three, we find, okay, I'm going to teach you a theological term today, all right? Now, usually when I do this kind of stuff, I like to pause and make sure that everybody's with me. So let me teach you this theological term when it comes to hopelessness. You ready for the term? Freak out. (laughs) Okay, and tell me that's not what we tend to, to get to at least at some point. If things continue to move in the wrong direction, there is that breaking point where all of a sudden all of the logic is gone and now it's just time to freak out. Oh, Americans are great at freaking out. And so we find verses 6 and 7. And he, that is Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, you know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now before I go to verse 7, let me make sure we get the gravity of verse 6. The king of Syria is the one who writes the letter. The king of Syria is the one who sends his army commander down to Israel, he sends him down there with a skin condition that is incurable, and he sends them down there with a sin condition I mean, a skin condition that's incurable, with a letter that says to the king of Israel, whom he has been sending military raiding parties, and says to him, "Heal him. How'd you like to get that letter? Well, see, it's freak-out time. Verse 7, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, and he said, Oh, my gosh, we're all going to die. Well, that's not what he says, but that's what it sounds like. Am I, God, to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider... And see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. In other words, he took it as one of those diplomatic moves, a power move, if you will, so that he would have the occasion to raid Israel and declare war. All it takes to avoid that is just cure this guy of an incurable disease. See, there are times in life when the most logical thing to do is to freak out, apparently. So one of the things that we've done lately I've been preaching through the book of James and obviously Easter is kind of a standalone day but I've been preaching through the book of James and James has taught us a number of things in there. One of which is that when you face trials and tribulations in your life and we all face them but when you face them you should ask yourself this question. Where's God in this? So And here's what drives that. The basic understanding that we take from Scripture is that God is, in fact, God, which means nothing happens to you by chance, that God is in the process of working through history to its appointed end. And when something happens to you, either God made it happen or God allowed it to happen, or he's not God, which, by the way, is not a good option, number three. So either he made it happen or he allowed it to happen. It opens a whole big discussion I'm not going to take the time to have today. But it does also push us to ask this question. When you go through trials and things that push you towards hopelessness, you should ask yourself, where is God in this? Because when we get to freak out mode, we don't even look for God usually. So the question here is, where is God in all of this maybe the question for us me and you is who is your Naaman who or what is it in your life that when they show up with a letter like this it causes you to go oh my we're all gonna die let's keep moving scene four maybe it's a good thing to say for us that when we find ourselves in that situation and it's freak out time what you really need is an elisha in your life this is verse 8 but when elisha the man of god heard that the king of israel had torn his clothes he sent to the king saying why have you why have you torn your clothes in other words what are you thinking man well, that's pretty strong words when you're talking to the king, but he goes on to say, let him, that is and come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, God shows up on the scene for the king of Israel. God is always at work in the midst of your circumstances. He always has hope for you even in the darkest, hopeless places. And in this case, the man of God, the prophet, steps into the mix for that king who saw no way out of his flight and he said, just send him to me. And he'll know that there is a prophet in Israel. Where is God in this? The answer is, God may very well, hear me very carefully now, God may very well have engineered your circumstances as bad as they are to put you in a position where he can show up and you'll see him. You know, most of us don't need God on a day-to-day basis, or at least we live our lives that way. I'm, I'm not hacking on anybody. I'm just calling it like it is. I'm the same way. We go through our life, and we know in our head that God loves us and he's there every day and all that stuff. But the reality is we kind of float through life until we hit those situations that go, oh, man, i got a problem. Where's God? And the answer is God is always there for you. Scene five, this is the one that gets us to another statement we learn from James, and that is when you hit those situations that push you, it's good to recognize that it's always a test. Where's God in this? And the answer to that sometimes is God is saying, uh, do you trust me? And verses nine and 10 help us to see that. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the, at the door of Elisha's house. I love this because Elisha, says, I'm not going to play by your rules. You're going to do it my way. And in doing that, he commits a couple of, of offenses against Naaman. This guy is a powerful figure. Elisha doesn't even greet him at the door. He sends his messenger. Uh, We're verse 12, no, verse 11. But Naaman was angry. Now, uh, wow, how did I do that? Verse Somebody help the boy out. Where are we? Verse 9, thank you. So So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. That's the river. In other words, go dunk yourself seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that I would surely come out, that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. Now, here's another word. Let me put that in my terms. Naaman says, I thought sure that I was going to get a dog and pony show out of this for all of those riches I brought him. I was expecting him to come out. And breathe on my people and they'd all fall backwards. I thought that I would show up and he would wave his hand and throw incantations at me and burn some incense and all of those things that Naaman said I thought would happen. And Elisha doesn't even bother to meet him at the door. He sends word through a messenger, hey, just go dunk yourself in the river and it's all good. The cure for your skin disease is the Jordan River. Just go dunk yourself. But here's where you and I are just like Naaman. That wasn't good enough for Naaman. Naaman brought his preconceived expectations to the table and when God didn't meet them, he said, and I'll have none of that. Well, I hadn't got to that part yet. Let me go ahead and finish reading. Verse 12, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? In other words, I could have saved myself all the expense of this trip. I could have just gone to my own waters and done this. So he turned and he went away in a rage. This is the heart of this story that I wanted us to get. Our nature is to bring to the table what we expect. And we like to push God into that little box to say you do it our way. And if he doesn't do it our way, then we get all huffy and we walk away. And we get offended with God because God doesn't play by the rules that we put on the table. Well, you know, well, okay, and so here's how that usually happens. It's usually not that we're so offended with God, it's that we get offended with God's people or with God's preachers. And so we say things like, well, I'm not ever going back to that church or I'm not ever going back to church, or I just don't know that I'm willing to trust that. It's, it's amazing to me that Naaman had a simple solution to a hopeless situation, and he said, I ain't doing that. It's not what I had in mind. So scene six picks it up, and here's the good news for you. We may give up on God, but God never gives up on us. You see, if it was if if I had been God in this passage right here, let me tell you, you don't know how glad you are I'm not God. <laughs> First of all, if I was God, there would be a whole lot of less people driving between here and Beaumont every day, because <laughs> I'd send one of those heavenly nuclear bolts on some of those crazy drivers. I, I'm telling you, it's a good thing I'm not God. And in this case, it's a good thing I wasn't God here because if I had been God and Naaman said to me essentially that I'm not doing that, it's not what I had in mind, I'm not playing by your rules, then I would have said, okay, Mr. Leper, enjoy your disease because the offer now for healing is off of the table. That's what I would have done if I was God. Aren't you glad I'm not God for you? I'm glad you're not God, too, because you're just as eaten up with that kind of thinking as I am, right? It's amazing how we try to push God into a little box, and then we say, you do it our way, or you don't get to do it at all, and yet somehow God says, no, I'm going to give you another shot at this. And you know what? Many of us, myself included, if we hadn't been given another shot by God, we wouldn't be here today. We may give up on him, but he doesn't give up on us. Verses 13 and 14. But his servant came near and said to him, this is, by the way, is a very dangerous thing for a servant to say to their master, who's a military commander. My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down. And he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Here's a newsflash for us all. When we do it God's way, it works. It always works. And the cure for skin disease for Naaman was... Something so simple and so ridiculous that we never would have dreamed it up ourselves. And it worked. That pushes me back into the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26, we find the account that I've already referred to today. But in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, we find these words. And then Jesus went with them, that is the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, here's what I want you to do. Okay, I want us to pause and I want you to listen to the words that Matthew records. And I want you to listen for the depth of anguish in these words. I want you to listen. With fresh ears today, I know that it's Easter and we sing the songs and we jump up and down and we we have all those kind of great things about the resurrection. I totally get that. But the whole premise of what I'm saying today is we're not ready to celebrate Easter until we embrace the anguish of the Garden of Gethsemane. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful. And troubled, and he said to them, "My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me." This might be a good time for us to stop and say, "Why this?" I, I know that I'm out of time, but let me see if I can get this in there for you. When Teresa and I went to Israel a few years ago. One of the last things that we did in Jerusalem was go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I have to tell you, it was much smaller and a much less a garden than what I thought it was. Uh, it's more like your backyard, most of you. But you know, it was one of those rare times on that tour where the tour guide said to us, I'm going to just give you some time. And you find a place and just spend the time the way you want to. There are people everywhere. There's tourists all over the place. And I went and I kind of carved out this little spot in the Garden of Gethsemane and I did the best I could to reconnect with this moment that we just read. I don't know that we can put into words the depth of the sorrow that Jesus felt, that human part of him that struggled with the divine, I put it in my terms again. He said essentially in his prayer, God, I don't want to do this. It's hard for me to imagine Jesus being at a point where He where He said that. But all of us run into those times, don't we? Don't you run into situations where you go, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to go through this. I'm tired of the fight all the time. And then that divine part of Jesus says, yet yeah, it's really not what I want, it's what you want. But you see, that's what Naaman couldn't get. Naaman had a hard time getting to that point of, okay, I'll park what I want in favor of what God wants. But he had to get to the part where he would surrender what he wanted in order to get what God had for him. That makes sense? It's exactly where Jesus is here. I surrender my own will to yours. And what followed, what we would love to say, is, and then it was all party after that. Man, it was, you know, balloons and all that cake, and it's just all party for Jesus after that. Not so. Jesus surrendered to the will of his father in this, and they killed him for it. But we have to embrace that because it's, that part of what God had designed that we would never design for ourselves that was the cure for the sin disease of all man. I posted this morning about five o'clock or so on social media. I've been to the tomb and he's not there. That's a true statement. I've been to a lot of places around the world where great figures are still buried. But I went to the tomb that most believe is where Jesus had been buried, and he's not there. You want a good piece of information? He was there, but he had to get there in order for Easter to mean something. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Musicians, come forward. Let me just ask you. Those things that are in your life now that are not what you would have chosen that push you towards being hopeless and push you towards despair. Those things that are in your life, where's God in that? We come to Easter Sunday and we, we kind of reduce it sometimes to the cutest little meme that we can put on social media or you know those little trite sayings that we have. But the reality is that in order to get to the celebration time, there had to be a pouring out of himself and suffering on the part of Christ. He did that for you. It had to be that way for you. And so now you're confronted with that. And just like Naaman, you're now confronted with the opportunity for a cure to your sin disease. All you have to do is say, I believe it and I accept it. Or you can walk away from it. And God will let you walk away from life. But if you will accept it, he will give you a life that will absolutely blow your mind. So what do you believe? What do you do? This invitation time. We're going to start singing here in just a few moments. We'll have more singing time after that as a congregation. But this invitation time is for you to deal with what God says, this is my plan. What do you do with Jesus? we have some of our staff across the back some of our deacons are back there Uh, I'll be back there in just a moment we do that because it's a little easier maybe to kind of excuse yourself towards the back where we can talk than it is to walk down front this is an opportunity for you to have those conversations don't walk out of here without Jesus Christ as Savior of your life Father take this time use it for your glory in Jesus name Amen